So our family was on vacation last week. Uh, we had the, the privilege the, uh, to, to head out to San Diego and kind of bank up on some sunshine, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, a lot of you know that we usually take a large uh, vacation in the, in the summertime, but last winter was just so brutal that we were like, maybe we should peel off uh, some time from that. And so we were able to get out uh, to San Diego and have some awesome family time and uh, play around on the beach and, and hang out and eat amazing tacos and stuff like that. Uh, well, one of the things that you have to do when you go to San Diego, many of you told us, you said, be sure you do this when you go to San Diego, and that's to visit their world-famous zoo. And our family loves going to the zoo. It's, 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 the zoo is a fantastic place to go. And, and honestly, I love the San Diego Zoo, but after that experience, I actually, actually think that I personally like the Minnesota Zoo a little bit more. And we can, we can debate that after the service, if you want, over some choice pancakes. Uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. When we were at the zoo this last time, oh, there were two animals in particular that stuck out to me. One is the hippopotamus. Now, have any of you actually seen a living hippopotamus? They are terrifying. It is like one of the scariest animals you can ever see. And I feel like childhood does not prepare you for actually encountering a hippopotamus because every children's book ever portrays them as these like little, cute, squishy, fluffy animals, and that is not what they're like in reality. In reality, they are like this living, breathing Volkswagen bug that is like coated in this slimy sort of um, armored steel, I guess. I don't know. Like they're, they're terrifying creatures. And we saw this mama hippo just getting out of the water and it was absolutely terrifying. Like I knew that if that thing just barely flicked its head and I was standing next to it, I would, I would go flying in the air from there all the way up and I'd probably land a little bit over here. Like the cre- it, it was terrifying, very powerful. And this particular hippo had just given birth. There was a baby hippo there that was like three days old. And you might be tempted to go, oh, that's the cutest sounding thing in the world. It was not cute. It was also terrifying. Like this little tiny baby hippo, I knew, like, if I was locked in a room with this thing, I would not be the one living, uh, able to escape the room alive. Like this baby hippo, this three-day-old you know, cute little baby hippo would have destroyed me. Very powerful, terrifying baby. Uh, scary baby. Um, <laughs> enough of the baby, okay. The other animal that I love, I, I wish I could remember the name of this animal. Molly, you might be able to remind me. But it was this, this bird that was like this tall. And I, I heard the tour guide call it Charlie. I don't think it's, that's like this, the scientific name of the, the bird is Charlie. Um, but this bird was beautiful. Like, it was absolutely gorgeous. It, it had these tall, uh, skinny, uh, elegant legs. It had kind of a, a light body. And then the feathers that came, of it, came off of it were just absolutely black. And I don't remember any much color to it, but it was just that black and white pattern to it, especially like the black plumes that came off of his head. Like, maybe this isn't the best way to describe it, but they kind of looked like these sort of sharp, elegant knives coming off. And it, it, it really was beautiful. And what the animal, what this bird would do is it would kind of jump up in the air and then float softly down on the ground and then start scratching the ground as if it was like looking for crickets or something. 
And I was just mesmerized by this beautiful dance that this bird kept doing over and over and over. And I, I wish I had a better vocabulary to describe to you just how gorgeous this bird was. But trust me, it was absolutely beautiful. And like, that's the kind of experience that I love having when I go to the zoo. Like, I think a good visit to the zoo is, it, it can be uh, had if over the course of your morning there, you have these overwhelming feelings of, of awe over the power of animals, but also this overwhelming sense of beauty that you can see among those animals there, these living creatures. Like that what's, that's what makes for a good zoo experience, is leaving it and just being absolutely awestruck of the animals of this creation. Well, today is Transfiguration Sunday, which transfiguration, that's not really a word that we use very much. It's kind of a churchy word. It's, uh, it's, it's what we use to describe what happened that day 2,000 years ago when Jesus took his disciples up on that hill, when, he, when the veil was peeled back from who Jesus is, and we saw him for his reality. We saw this glorious, radiant being standing before them. Now, the transfiguration event, this is a major shift that happens in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because from here on out, after this story, if you were to read the Gospels from front to end, after the transfiguration, a major shift happens, and Jesus' tone dramatically shifts. He gets a little bit more somber. He tells the disciples that he is actually about to head to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed by friends and he will be put to death. In fact, just a few verses after today's reading, Jesus pulls some of his disciples aside and he says this to them in 17, verse 22. He says, the Son of Man, that is, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him, but he will be raised up on the third day. Now, when Jesus says this to his disciples, they're not like, oh, that sounds cool. No, like they're greatly distressed by this. They're very, very upset. I mean, imagine one of your, your beloved teachers or mentors coming up to you and saying, I don't have very much time with you. And that is exactly how the disciples are feeling from this point on in the gospel. They're starting to see that this, this whole Jesus ministry isn't just about healings and, and restoring people and blessing people, that there's actually a dark twist that's about to come to this as well. Well, this also marks, today also marks a major shift in the church calendar in our annual uh, church calendar that we celebrate. This Sunday, today, this is the last Sunday of Epiphany. And it's fitting, isn't it, that Epiphany, the season of, of, that we celebrate God's light breaking forth into the world, climaxes with Jesus himself radiating from the top of a mountain. Well, it's also a big day for us because we've got, we're celebrating a baptism today. This is an exciting day for us and for our church and for our family and for you guys. Like There's a baptism that's going on today. And we're also going to celebrate with pancakes. We're going to have pancakes after the service today. This whole room, we're going to flip it over, turn it into a big pancake feast. There'll be griddles all over. Uh, You might already be catching whiffs of the pancakes from the kitchen right now. Um, And then three days from now, we're going to be stepping into the season of Lent. Uh, We're going to be gathering together uh, and uh, participating in an Ash Wednesday service, which kicks off the season of Lent. So today is a big shift. We're shifting today. Well, transfiguration is also one of these awestruck moments. It's one of these moments of life where we're kind of knocked back on our feet, when we're shocked by who Jesus is, by his character. 
And it's difficult to think about things from normal life that we can really compare to Jesus. You know, we could go around the room and talk about ways in which hippopotami scared the living uh, stuff out of us. Uh, We could talk about stories in which we've been awestruck by a sunset or a mountainscape or something else or or maybe news that somebody has, has shared you before. But I think all of these kinds of experiences they kind of function just as, as teasers to encountering God himself. It's as if the Lord gives us these moments among his creation so that our hearts can be tuned and trained or longing for more. We, you know, I don't know about you, but I leave experiences like the zoo and I'm like, I want to see something even more magnificent. And my heart is just constantly pulling me and, and, and driving me towards an encounter with God himself. You know, of course, Jesus, he's more powerful than a wild beast, of course, Jesus, he's, he's more beautiful than a bird of paradise. To put this in Narnian terms, he's, he's no tame lion. He's beautiful, he's huge, he's powerful. And this, the disciples on that day, 2,000 years ago, got to behold God. They got to see God in his glory. And this is a remarkable moment. So my hope for us today is that we would never cease to be an awestruck people. That we would know how to keep our eyes healed and open and ready to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. So I'd like to walk us through this passage, and I'd like to show you ways in which he, he strikes awe into us. And may we, never be, uh, may we never stop being struck by Jesus and who he is, by his power, by his beauty, by his compassion, which is all so palpable in this passage. So let's look here at what's going on uh, in, in, Mac, in Matthew uh, chapter 17. So Jesus brings his disciples up, the, uh, three of his closest disciples, up to the mountain, and then his appearance itself begins to change. Another thing in San Diego we saw, I saw a lot of people who were probably trying to glow, uh, a lot of really interesting uh, paints on people and uh, clothing on people. None of them were glowing like Jesus was glowing in this, in this uh, picture today. His face begins to, to burn bright as the sun. His clothes begin to grow as, glow as bright white light. Now, these are not any uh, insignificant changes that are taking place. Moses, uh, if you were to read the story from Exodus, Moses, his face begins to shine after he spends time with God. But Jesus, he begins to shine just of his own will, just, just of his own volition. It's like a veil is being pulled back. <coughs> And then just as beings from heaven, as their clothing glows, so Jesus Christ glows himself. Jesus, the carpenter's son, Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is now clothed in light. He is no normal man, we see, but he is a heavenly man, a man from heaven. And keep in mind, this is Jesus' true form. He's not uh, transforming into something entirely new here. It's not like Jesus is getting a promotion. Uh, it's not like God the Father is like, all right, you've done quite a bit. It's now time for you to receive your glow status. You can, you know, you can glow now. It's, you're good for that. No, this is what we're, see- we're seeing Jesus as he's always been. The veil is being pulled back. When the demons see Jesus coming, they see this radiant creature coming. This is why there is fear that is struck in them. You know, this is who Jesus is in his true form. Now, for the disciples, yes, this is a new experience. But for Jesus, he is the glorious Son of God. He is the one, um, the King of heaven, who comes. 
Now, you may have noticed that there's other people who start to appear next to Jesus on the mountain. Moses and Elijah come, representing the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, Moses and Elijah, they themselves both have uh, unusual stories. For Moses and Elijah, this isn't their first rodeo. They themselves have had terrifying experiences of encountering God on, on a holy mountain. But another interesting thing about Moses and Elijah, I, I don't know if you've realized this, but neither one of them saw their ministries fulfilled. Both of them, their lives ended with a kind of a, a tragic twist to them. With Moses, he got angry and he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. And then Elijah, he didn't ever get to see the people return back from their exiles. And yet here they are, Moses and Elijah. These two old men whose dreams they never saw fulfilled, they're now standing next to Jesus. Standing as reminders that the work that God had begun in them was not yet completed, was not yet finished. And yet here they are, Moses and Elijah. And you know what they kind of remind me of? To me, they're like the embodiment of old, unanswered prayers. Here they are, standing there. And it's, you can almost imagine Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus there, saying to him, we have been waiting a long time for this moment. We've been praying for this. We knew that you would be coming. We didn't know how long it would take. But we have been wanting you to come for such a long time. You are an answer to our prayers, I'm sure is what they're telling Jesus here. So what sort of old prayers are you holding on to? What are the things in your heart that have kind of been bouncing around year after year after year, decade after decade? What sort of desires has God placed in your heart? What sort of longings has God placed in your heart? Things that don't go away, even though all worldly reason tells you to let go of these foolish dreams, to let go of these foolish desires. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's a, a young one or a, a, a someone in your life who you, you love and you would love to see return back home after being away for a while. Maybe it's a disease that you've carried for a long time and, and this thing has just plagued you. It's, it's shaped the way that you identify yourself, the way that you walk even, and you want to see that taken away. And these prayers just keep bouncing around within you. you you've tried to get away from these prayers. You've tried to let go of them but they're still in your heart. They still pop up in those quiet, lonely times, those dark times of prayer. You know, what I love about seeing Moses and Elijah there is that they're a reminder to us now, so long after this event, they're reminders to us that God answers old prayers. God answers old prayers. And in fact, I would wager that those those longings that you have within you, those are being held there by the Holy Spirit because there will be a day in which God will fulfill and answer those things. And maybe it'll be after you've already passed away. I don't know. I can't, I can't promise that all your wildest dreams are going to come true or anything like that. I don't know. But I can promise you that, that God has placed those desires in you for some kind of fulfillment at some point in time. All of our promises have our yes in Jesus Christ. And I look at Moses and Elijah there, and I know the story isn't over yet for those of us who have these long, deep, prayer-filled longings within us. Well, then there's other people on the mountain as well. The disciples are there. And don't you just love Peter? Like, he's kind of weird in this passage. Like, he he speaks, and you're like, that was interesting. Like, that was kind of strange. Like, Peter gets really excited there. He's like, 
wow, my Lord is glowing, and wow, Moses is here, and wow, Elijah's here. And, and, and he just gets so amped up. And then, and then you hear him open his mouth, and you're like, hmm. So what does he say? Well, he, he states the obvious. He's like, it is good that we are here. <laughs> yes, Peter. <laughs> It is good that we are here. But then he doesn't stop. Peter's like, I would like to build a tent. I would like to build three tents. I would like to build a tent for you, Jesus. And I would like to build a tent for Moses. And I would like to build a tent for Elijah. And you read that passage and you're like, again, this is, okay, Peter, nice. And, and maybe you're more charitable than I am. Maybe you're like, hey, if, if you read this in the original language, uh, you know, it actually makes more sense in those terms. And, and that might get you a little bit of traction, but when we read this story in the other Gospels, when Mark and Luke tell this, they specifically tell you, Peter doesn't know what he's talking about right now. Like, Peter said this, and yes, it was weird. We're going to keep it there. <laughs> And it's, it's really funny because, like, you know, I read a lot of commentaries about this, and almost every scholar says something different about this. Like, some try to rationalize Peter's words. Some scholars will say things like, yeah, Peter was trying to control Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He's trying to put them in a box. You know, he's trying to put them in this, in this tent box. You know, he's trying to control them. And if you've grown up in, like, an uh, evangelical or charismatic church, you're probably told, like, Peter's just trying to, to have his mountaintop experience, and, you know, Peter needs to get off the mountain. He needs to go in the valley, you know, and it's like, that's, that's a modern phrase. They don't really talk about mountaintop experiences in the Bible, and then some scholars are like, well, Peter's error is that he tried to make Jesus equal to Moses and Elijah, and that was a big mistake, and, and I just think, honestly, I think all of these are kind of a stretch because, again, the gospel writers themselves, they tell you Peter was running his mouth. He didn't know what he was saying. It is good that we are here today. You know, and, and when I read that, I'm actually kind of comforted by that. Like, I sometimes fumble over my words. When I get excited, I sometimes say things that are a little awkward, you know? And if you guys have been my friend long enough, you totally know that about me. <laughs> and, and I'm sure some of you, no, I'm, never mind, I'm probably the only person in the room who uh, deals with, with that problem. But you know, we all get amped up sometimes, right? Like we all get a little excited and we say things that aren't, that aren't perfect. We say things that are sometimes awkward and make other people kind of feel awkward sometimes. But you know what? Like the story continues. The story continues. God's grace abounds. God can deal with our awkwardness at times. He can deal with that. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm personally comforted by that. Well, the story continues. The story gets even more fantastic. The story gets a little more over the top. Here, the entire heavens seem to tear open, and the presence of God Almighty, the Father in heaven, comes down in this glowing cloud, symbolizing the glorious presence of God himself. No doubt, this is the same cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness after their escape from slavery. This is the same cloud that descended upon Mount Sinai and delivered the law to Moses. This is the same cloud that filled the temple with all of this glory, terrifying the entire people of God. And then from the cloud comes this voice, this heavenly voice, this booming voice, this shaking the foundations of the mountain voice comes down and says this, 
The voice speaks over Jesus, saying, This is my beloved Son. This is the one with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, if this story had a glory dial, you know, this is the moment in which the dial gets turned up all the way to 11. Like, this is a, a really big, powerful glory moment right here. The significance to 11, 11's bigger than 10. That's, that's why that's a big glory. Okay, thank, thank you, Karen. Thank you for the laugh. <laughs> so this, this is when the story changes from just like a who's who gathering of heavenly people to a visitation of God Almighty. And the disciples, they fall flat. They're absolutely terrified. They don't know what to do. You know, I kind of imagine the hobbits, right, who, who have their invisibility cloaks, and they're like, all right, it's time to, time to go bye-bye. Like, that's what the disciples do at this moment. They lay down. They're absolutely flat. They're terrified. They don't dare look up. They don't want to see what's going on in this moment. They fall down, terrified, probably afraid that their souls are just going to evaporate into a mist right there in that moment. And I wonder how much time passed in that moment. Did the voice say more things? Did the mountain continue to tremble for a while? Like how much time passed between verse 6 when the voice comes and verse 7 when Jesus goes and talks to, to them? Like what happens here? Well, we don't know exactly. We don't know how long this moment lasts. But we do know eventually the terrifying things, the dead people who'd come back, everything kind of goes back to normal. The cloud fades, Moses and Elijah go down. Jesus puts the veil back over his face. And then what happens next? He goes over to his disciples. And what does he do? Does he lecture them? Does he remind them the significance of what happens? Does Jesus go, uh, I hope you realize that was a big deal. Like Moses and Elijah were here. You know who they are, right? You heard my dad speak. That was kind of a big deal for me. Thank you very much. I just want to make sure you understood that because I am important. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Nor does Jesus shame, he doesn't shame them either. Jesus doesn't go over to Peter and he's like, um, that thing you said about the tents, that was ridiculous. You will be confusing scholars for the next 2,000 years. That was very embarrassing, Peter. Like, no, he doesn't say that either. Like, Jesus, that doesn't even occur to our Lord. He doesn't lecture them. He doesn't shame them. No, he goes to them, and he places a hand on their shoulders, and he says, rise. There's nothing to be afraid of. You can rise. You can stand now. It's just me. It's just me. Now, that word for for Jesus reaching out and touching the disciples it's the same word that's used when Jesus reaches out and heals people or when he blesses them. This is, he's not just like tapping them on the shoulder like, hey, it's time to go. No, he's blessing them in this moment. This is, a, this is an appropriate touch of comfort and encouragement of building somebody up. He's saying to them, it's time to rise. It's time to get up. He's rest- he knows that Peter, John, and James are in a bad place. They're overcome by fear in this moment. They're terrified, and Jesus is restoring them. He's giving them life again. He's giving them spring in their step again. He's giving them health again. He's giving them power and comfort to rise and to stand again. No shame, no judgment, just compassion and grace and love and friendship. You've just seen terrifying things, but I'm still here with you. I'm still here with you. Well, I love that 
Uh, we are celebrating baptisms today. In fact, I think Walter knew I was going to say that. Walter was baptized on this day last year. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And what I love about celebrating baptism on a Transfiguration Sunday is that the same words that we hear the Father speaking over Jesus in this moment are the same words that Jesus heard back when he was baptized. And Isabel, today you're going to hear these words read and spoken over you today. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. The Lord God will be saying that over you today. And I know that you've had faith for a long time in the Lord Jesus Christ, but this is a day in which we, the entire church, and not just us here, but representing the global church, the cosmic church, are going to be standing around you saying, yes, you belong to us. You are a part of our household. Today is a special day, and it is a confirmation of that faith. And then after, communion, or after baptism, we're going to be moving into a, a time of communion, just like we do every Sunday. We're going to come up here to this table. And so my question for you, for all of us today, is who needs to, be, who needs to receive a, a comforting word from Jesus Christ? Who needs to feel the arm of the Savior reach out and put his hand on your shoulder and say, rise? There's nothing to be afraid of. Who needs to hear that today? You know, the Bible tells us that when we come up to the table, we're participating in the life of Christ we're folded into the life of Christ. We're, we're, we're becoming what we eat, right? We're being fed by the body of Christ so that we may be the body of Christ, that we may be the body of Christ and comfort one another. C.S. Lewis explains it this way. He says that when you come up and receive from the table, it's like a hand from the hidden country is reaching out and touching you in that moment. It's like Christ is reaching out, put his hand on, on your shoulder and saying, you belong to me, and he's nourishing you with his very presence. He's giving you a spiritual feast, a spiritual meal in that moment. And he's being with you in that moment. And that's not to say that when you come up, you're going to have some crazy emotional experience. That's not what this is about. That might happen. I don't know. Some of you have had those kinds of experiences before. But I can't promise that, that that's what's going to happen every single time you come up for communion. But I can promise you that you will be nourished, spiritually speaking, by the presence of Jesus Christ himself. The same Lord who reached out to those terrified disciples who are flattened on their faces is reaching out and touching you and comforting you today, saying, rise, you belong to me. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. Jesus is still in the business of restoring life to his people. So when you come up to the table today, may you expect to meet Christ. May you expect to be nourished by him. May you expect to have your soul touched by the presence of Jesus Christ today. Hearing those words over you rise, there is nothing to fear. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we are feeble creatures. We are awkward creatures at times. We are rebellious creatures at times, Lord. But you are good, and you are strong. And you forgive us, Lord Jesus Christ. You have the power to, to conquer sin and death itself. And you bring us into your fold. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the radiant one. And through baptism, you clothe us with your own radiance, Lord Jesus Christ. And you call us your own. So we thank you for that, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that you have for us. That while we were covered in fear and flattened on our faces, Lord Jesus Christ, you reached out and lifted us up. So we thank you for that, Lord Jesus Christ. You are beautiful and powerful and amazing and compassionate. And it's in your name that we pray all these things.
Amen.